to our podcast coverage of the 2023 annual POSNA meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. My co-hosts, Julia Sanders and Craig Lauer, will be in and out of the conversation with me again. This is episode two, the final part of our coverage of this meeting. Hopefully you've already joined us for the first. We're going to carry on with the same format. So with no further ado, let's do it. Hey guys, this is Craig Lauer. I'm here with uh, Julia and Carter at the annual meeting, and we have a guest in the podcast with us today. It's Pat Cahill from uh, CHOP. Thanks for joining us, Pat. Yeah, great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about what happened in the spine subspecialty day here at the annual meeting. Yeah, well, that's what we want to hear. The people at home want to know uh, what's, what's changed in the last year and what were the main discussion points uh, from your standpoint. So there's a lot of great discussion, a lot of great papers, and then some really good uh, impactful presentations. Some of the highlights for me were, were some really good papers that were questioning what's going on with vertebral tether. Is there truly growth modulation or not? Also, we had a mental health professional and a physical therapy expert give us some really good insight on uh, adolescent back pain and the management and evaluation of those patients. Um, then we had some good debates on spondylolisthesis as well. So there's a really good and varied program on the spine especially day. Let's get into the tethering because, you know, it's not a discussion without that, right? So I know that there was some talk about maybe the spines don't grow afterwards. And then there, uh, Dr. Andres presented from PSSG saying that not a lot of those patients were growth modulating. What's your take on what is going on actually with vertebral body tethering? And is it differing based off the technique or something that our groups are technically doing? That's a great question because the first three papers of the spine subspecialty day basically were at odds with each other. Two of them said uh, there's essentially no growth modulation. You get the spine straight at the time of surgery and then it stays there. It doesn't really continue to straighten. And then a third paper showed on a level by level uh, or vertebrae by vertebrae level that there is some change in the shape of each of the vertebrae and those patients that were tethered. I don't know that I uh, have enough data to, to really have a firm opinion on that yet, but I'm really glad that there's people that are looking at this really thoughtfully and critically and that we're able to have these sort of discussions as a group and, and there's not this sort of polarized opinion that people are really interested and open-minded about what the right thing is and what's really happening in, in the vertebral tether patients. My personal feeling is that there probably is a combination of rearrangement of the disc morphology that is also going on at the same time as some slow change in the subtle wedging that goes on with the vertebrae itself. And maybe we're not seeing an overall change in the cob angle because those two things are sort of working at different, uh, at odds against each other, uh, but could ultimately end up with a straight and aligned spine that doesn't need a tether to support it in that position. That's my gut that we're going to find, but I'm not sure that we have the data to really say that for sure. We can switch gears a little bit then. I know that there is some discussion about back pain. Yes. And uh, no one wants to talk about it. Carter wants to talk about it. Yeah, I really want to be the back pain guy. Some of your patients. Yeah. Um, so we heard in the session it's becoming, not becoming more complex, but we're developing a more complex understanding of what's really going on with back pain. So can you bring us up to date on sort of the uh, state of the art there? Yeah, so we heard some really good epidemiology uh, statistics from Susan Nelson from Strong Memorial in Rochester. She's a Master's of Public Health, and she kind of did a deep dive into the epidemiology, and there's some really good data that's relatively current 
post-pandemic data that shows that there's essentially an epidemic or maybe even a pandemic in adolescent back pain. She reported something like 38% of adolescents will have back pain to a significant amount, at least one episode per year, which is on par, if not a little bit higher than the adults' averages. And it seems to be increasing uh, since the pandemic. What wasn't clear to her is whether this back pain epidemic is triggered by the lack of activity that was going on in our adolescent population during the pandemic, or if it's because of the associated stressors and mental health factors that were at play during the pandemic. We know that there's been an increase in uh, mental health issues among teenage and adolescent patients since the COVID pandemic, and we know that there's a very strong interplay between chronic pain and mental health. So which of these is the, the reason for the increase in back pain, we don't know, but we know it's there. But to answer your point, uh, we had some really good speakers, including a pediatric adolescent psychologist from Texas Scottish Rite, who talked about their multidisciplinary approach and how they really work with patients and the patient's parents in patients that have chronic back pain. They don't diminish the symptoms of back pain, but they really look at the holistic picture, not just looking for structural things. And if they get a normal MRI, then they don't just kind of kick the patient out of their clinic. But one of the, the points that, I, that hit home really hard for me is that those patients that seem to display chronic pain tendencies also have high levels of pain catastrophization, and also their parents do as well. And that's something that they, they identified as being modifiable, and there's, there's some really good counseling techniques that uh, were offered to us as a handout that we'll try to distribute through either the program app or some other way to just get to our providers because I think that's how we can start to really work with our families and understand the whole process of chronic pain in this population rather than trying to minimize its impact on our clinics. We should probably take some ownership of that condition. Yeah, and then to get into the specifics, so how do you guys go about that at CHOP? What's sort of the pathway if you have one of these patients? Who who gets the referral? That's a great question. So this meeting was sort of a a challenge to me to try to standardize and uh, make some sort of protocol or pathway for those patients that we don't currently have a CHOP that they do have a Texas Scottish Rite. So they have a team of physicians and they have a back pain pediatric physical therapist that works really hard with physical therapies, which is also one of the mainstays of treatment of chronic back pain. And then they have a healthcare professional that's really attuned to this condition and this population that all work really closely with those patients. And they get plugged into this multidisciplinary approach that's systematic and holistic. That's something that I'd love to be able to mimic and try to build at our institution at CHOP that we don't have right now. One of the topics that we've talked about on the podcast recently is the opioid epidemic and opioid addiction. I know that's something that was touched on in the session, so can you tell us a little bit about how that relates to this back pain conversation? Yeah. Sheena Ronaday from New York gave a great talk on this opioid epidemic. One of the, the most important factors that she hammered home is that teenagers and adolescents, they get their opioids most commonly. The vast majority of those patients that become addicts that have access to opioids get them from surgeons, not just physicians, but surgeons. And so we have to be extraordinarily thoughtful about which conditions we need, absolutely need to prescribe opioids for, and um, and then the number of opioids that we prescribe. And then lastly, really being emphatic and organized about collecting unused opioids. That was, she thought that was the area that was most ripe for um, improvement in our field. Yeah, could not agree more. And then you guys also had a great session that you mentioned briefly about Spondy and some debates. So yeah. we could talk about that for hours, but yes. if we want to keep it simple, if this is simple, 
how did the debate shake out in your mind? Who gets a front back? Who gets just posterior surgery? Right. There's so many uh, controversies in, in areas of equipoise and spondylolisthesis. So when we queried the room about their preferred approach for a high-grade spondylolisthesis, the vast majority of our surgeons treat those posteriorly. Uh, but we heard from Mike Kelly, who recently joined Rady Children's Hospital, uh, but had spent most of his career as an adult spine surgeon. He loves to go from the front and do an A-lift. He feels it's much less invasive, uh, quicker recovery, and a much more reliable fusion. Um, and I thought that was pretty intriguing, and I actually asked him if I could go out and see one of those and learn from him and his team. The other debate that was really interesting was for a spondylolysis that fails conservative management. And we're talking conservative management, we're talking about six to 12 months of therapies, injections, and diagnostic and therapeutic injections. Um, somebody who fails all that, who ultimately gets to the point of uh, needing a surgery to return to their sport, in the case example we use, we use hockey, what is the right treatment? And the, the room was about 50 50 on people that would treat that with a fusion versus those that would try to repair the pars or get the fracture to heal. And we heard uh, really compelling arguments on both sides. Essentially, the fracture repair group, the downside is that maybe they have a little bit less union of the fracture or higher reoperation rate, but there's a theoretical advantage of preserved motion and less adjacent segment uh, stresses, which may uh, allow patients to return to certain sports more safely or reliably. And then there was the group that does a fusion that says, listen, this is a surgery we know we have a reliable result with and it's reproducible, why put patients through potentially two surgeries. And then the case we showed was at L5, where there's a relatively lower amount of motion. The argument was that you're not saving enough motion that it should really affect sports and things like that. So it was a compelling argument on both sides. I don't know that anything was decided, but it really elucidated the thinking and the thought process. And in my mind, it helped me present the options and how I'm going to present the options to patients and families that present to me in my office. So my favorite question for controversies is yeah. always, what's the right answer? So that patient walks into your office tomorrow yeah. and they ask, uh, what would you do if it's your kid? So uh, the case they showed was actually my case and I had done a repair of the PARs without doing the fusion. So. But again, this is it's not really even my preference. It's laying out the pros and cons of the family and it's ultimately a family decision. So that's that's the advantage of hearing those debates because it really helps you lay out the arguments for both sides. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. Dr. Cahill, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Pleasure as always. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, for Appreciate that. it. Thanks, yeah. man. Thank you. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Thanks so yeah. much. Yeah. Great to meet you. Likewise. Welcome back to the annual meeting. This is Julia Sanders, one of your co-hosts. I'm here with Craig and Carter. And we're happy to have Jean Franzone, who was one of the moderators for the lower extremity subspecialty day. So tell us a little bit, highlights, what you took from the session. There were a lot of really great papers. Yeah, it was a great session. Um, Thanks for uh, highlighting it. We had a dynamic session, lots of great audience uh, participation, a few uh, great highlights on different ways of assessing bone age and updated patient-reported outcomes. Then we had a great talk with some key takeaways, I think, on how to keep the knee safe in the setting of lengthening um, for congenitally deficient limbs. Dr. Hertzenberg had some great pearls about assessing knee instability preoperatively. 
assessing it with stabilizing preparatory surgery when applicable, and then if that knee instability develops during the lengthening process, aggressively halting the lengthening and doing procedures as needed to address the knee instability before it goes on to a knee that needs a salvage or rescue procedure. He highlighted that really well. Yeah, tell me a little bit about what would what degree of knee extension are you looking for? Like how careful do you have to be? Is it okay if they lose five or ten degrees? Do they have to be full extension? How close do you have to watch those? What was the takeaway? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, certainly releasing the iliotibial band and doing hamstring releases preoperatively to obtain full extension to start. And then really any loss of extension needs to be taken very seriously because it could quickly progress to a rotatory instability and a knee flexion contracture. And the ways to be aggressive about maintaining that full extension, you know, would either be expanding the knee with a frame or aggressively using a nighttime extension bracing or even custom devices when, when needed. Sure, absolutely. Uh, This is Craig. I heard there were also some uh, good debates that you guys facilitated, and so maybe we'll take the case of uh, congenital tibial pseudoarthrosis. Would you describe kind of the case that was up for debate and then maybe the two arguments on how to treat it? Yeah, I had a uh, spirited debate uh, regarding anterolateral bowing of the tibia before it fractures. Um, there was the uh, the camp of guided growth, and then the other side was addressing it with osteotomy and the cross-union technique. And I, I, there really wasn't a, a, a clear winner per se, but I think the, the key takeaways are that the guided growth procedure is certainly much less invasive. But the key, as with a lot of guided growth procedures, is to start young and be prepared to revise, especially um, that epiphyseal screw with growth, and really follow them closely. The young kids or, you know, any of the kids who are treated with guided growth for that anterolateral bowing should really be followed at four-month intervals was the recommendation. It was a good debate. So then um, who won you over? (laughs) You've got a non-fractured tibia pseudoarthrosis. Are you going to cut that bone and try and realign it and get a union, or are you going to do guided growth? If the child is young enough, I would do guided growth. (laughs) (laughs) All right, very good. (laughs) Yeah, there were some great radiographs that were shown, too, of the longer-term follow-up of that guided growth, too. So I would encourage all the listeners out there to check out the upcoming papers on that. Yeah, yeah, some great long-term follow-ups there. Yeah, there was another uh, very um, hotly contested debate regarding hibernating or sleeper plates in the setting of uh, guided growth, and that was uh, backed by two head-to-head abstracts, which was really interesting. I think the, the takeaways there were, uh, you know, in the setting of congenital limb deficiency, especially if it's uh, done percutaneously, the, the sleeper plate can be an effective technique. The, the cautions are to avoid using it in the settings of MHE or um, oskeletal dysplasias. That was, uh, that was a great debate. And one of the other interesting findings was, I think, one of the abstracts found a difference in material. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, hadn't really thought of. So titanium, they found it, there was a higher likelihood of bony overgrowth and bony bar. So yeah. something to think about, and I think we'll have bigger numbers coming out soon. Yeah. But can, can I ask the specific reason for the caution in that those populations you mentioned, MHE or you said dysplasias? Is it that the place for the epiphyseal screw later is just not in the right spot? 
Um, or is there some sort of overgrowth or some more likely to tether or what is it? Yeah, great uh, great question. Mo- mostly the latter. Okay. They're more likely to develop that bony bar that acts as a tether. Yeah. Understood. So do you use them or not? <laughs> My population, uh, you know, I have a lot of OI patients and, you know, for our dysplasia patients at our institution, we, we do not. Yeah. The hot seat, Julia but, uh, throwing it down. I know, I know, yeah. throwing you in the fire. Yeah, but I, I think the data was was well shown yeah. for the congenital limb deficiencies. They showed that it can be successful in that population. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for great having these. you. Thanks for moderating. Yeah, it's been a good meeting so far. Great attendance this year, huh? Oh yeah, yeah it's crazy. Yeah. They're like running out of food and chairs, yeah. which yeah, is a great problem. Record setting. Hello again, everyone. We are back in the booth. I'm here with Craig and Dr. Niraj Patel from Lurie Children's Hospital. Niraj, what's up? Hey, good to see you guys. Dr. Patel just won the award for the best e-poster of Boston, so that's what we want to hear about. So with no further ado, let's hear it. All right, well, thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, so uh, definitely honored to take home some hardware um, on that poster. Yeah, so basically the premise of this is, as we know, you know, typical tubercle fractures are pretty common, uh, common enough, I should say, that we all take care of them, but rare enough that there's not a lot of great data on them. So... We put together a study group that's continued to kind of grow to study tubal tubal fractures some more. So this poster specifically was on non-operative treatment of, of tubal fractures. And so if you look at the previous literature on this stuff, it's almost all weighted towards surgically treated tubercle fractures. And so even though that data is limited, the data on non-operative treatment is even more limited. So in this study, there are, I think, 126 patients treated non-operatively, and we looked at risk factors for failure of non-operative treatment, meaning people that needed surgery after initially being treated without surgery. And so 19% eventually went on to be treated with surgery. Again, this is from seven centers um, across the country. So we looked at risk factors for that. And so the main risk factors we found out uh, when you controlled for a bunch of different demographic things and stuff. So older age was predictive of uh, potentially needing surgery. And Ogden type 2 and 3 uh, were higher odds than Ogden type 1. Those are the main findings, I would say. What I think was interesting, although it didn't sort of bear out statistically because we didn't have quite the power to really do a detailed sub-analysis, is if you look at each Ogden fracture type, there was definitely a trend towards the more displaced ones eventually going on to need surgery, which kind of makes sense, right, intuitively, but there just wasn't quite enough power to, like, parse that out. So that's, that's the main takeaway, I would say, is that the older kids and then Ogden 2s and 3s seem to go on to it, but I think I would just sort of put a little caveat on them to say, specifically, if they were kind of leaning towards a, a more displaced fracture initially. So has this changed what you do when you see these patients when you non-op them? Is there something different now that goes through your head? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, again, I think based on the literature that's out there and sort of anecdotal experience talking to people, I'd say like the majority of these end up being treated surgically, right? Um, and maybe, you know, curious to see your guys' experience yeah, too. Yeah, low threshold um, for sure. Yeah, you know, um, but I think, you know, it does give you a little more evidence to say like, hey, if someone's a little borderline situation, you know, they're like 15 rather than 12 or 13 and... You know, maybe it's not widely displaced where you're, like, obviously operating on it, but, you know, kind of a little bit gray area, kind of leaning towards that direction. At least it gives you some data to have a conversation with the family to say, hey, you know, it may be worth fixing it. Here are the pros and cons, et cetera. And all these non-ops, they're going into a straight long leg cast. Is that what you're doing with them? My personal practice or yeah. in, the, in the paper? Uh, both. Sure. So, so let's start with the paper and then yeah, you do. Yeah. So, so the paper was a, a completely mixed bag, um, which really reflected kind of like the real world variability in treatment of these fractures, right? So people were using casts, neomobilizers, braces, um, cylinder casts, long leg casts, all that kind of thing. I will often do a neomobilizer for these kids when I treat them non operatively unless 
and this is hard to parse out sometimes, but unless I get the sense that <laughs> the thing's coming off and they're going to cause problems, then they get either a cylinder cast or a long cast. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of variability in how people do that, and I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer as far as that goes. I know that this is just one study, and as you mentioned, the study group, which has a very cool acronym, <laughs> as all study groups must. Do you want to talk a little it. bit about Titus? Sure, yeah, 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 Titus. So tibial, it's very simple. Tibial tubercle study group, Titus. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, easy. Yeah. Why don't you know, we think of sense. that? It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it itself. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so who's involved? What sort of outcomes? I know some of the things you've already studied, but what are you building towards? Yeah, yeah. So, right, so seven centers right now, and it was kind of fun to do because it just kind of grew about organically. Uh, Neil Koshal and Flo from uh, Rutgers in Newark, New Jersey, reached out a couple years ago. They were kind of interested in this topic, so we put together a survey study at that time just to figure out, like, hey, what are people doing, you know? Um, and there's a bunch of clinical vignettes and asked a zillion detailed questions about evaluation and treatment and post-op and all stuff. And we just found that everyone's answers were all over the place. So then we kind of said, hey, like, we should we should study this because there's no data on any of this stuff. And a lot of people were, were willing to do that, and so that's how this kind of evolved. So we've collected a lot of retrospective data on surgical and non-surgical patients, presented some surgical data here as well this year on risk factors for stiffness after surgery. So those so are two of the, the early questions we looked at, the retrospective data. We are writing up, like, an epidemiologic thing, which will be, you know, close to 500 patients if you combine the operative and non-operative patients kind of interesting. Um, We're looking at things like compartment syndrome, you know. There's a lot of fear, and I think rightfully so, of compartment syndrome, and traditionally talk about high risk. I think one of the old, old papers, 20% risk and all that kind of stuff. And I'll say, like, that definitely wasn't borne out in in our data, you know, with these 500 patients. So I think revisiting that is going to be one thing we do. We've looked at, or at least tried to start looking at, like, screw configuration, screw size, all these kind of things. But those things are a little challenging retrospectively, and, and um, you know, we haven't found, like, differences in complication rates yet. So we're still kind of working through some of that. But ultimately, what we want to do is ultimately transition this into a prospective study. And so over the next few months, that's the, the next sort of step that we're kind of gearing up for. Um, so hopefully we can kind of set up better study design and answer these questions in a more meaningful way. All right. Well, let's get personal at this point. Oh, boy. So in your practice, are these patients getting prophylactic anterior compartment releases? Uh, not routinely, definitely not routinely. I think if there's concern that there's an evolving compartment syndrome or certainly a diagnosed compartment syndrome, then sure, I think it's very reasonable to do. Personally, again, anecdotally, I can't remember the last time I prophylactically did fasciotomies even, but clearly it does happen, you know, in, in every every center. And, you know, I don't know that the indications are crystal clear. I think it's safer to do it rather than not if you have a suspicion of an evolving compartment syndrome. But again, you know, in the data we have so far, retrospectively, there are only a handful of cases of compartment syndrome out of like the several hundred patients that we have. Um, I think it's a little bit biased by the fact that these are done at academic places with residents and, you know, a good sense of like, get these to the OR fast and these kind of things. But my sense is that, you know, you may not need to worry quite as much as we traditionally have. And then uh, what kind of screws are you using these days? Unicortical, bicortical, cannulated, headless, non-headless? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lot, lots, of, lots, of, uh, lots of options. I always tell the residents, big kids get big screws. <laughs> Whether that's, again, not evidence-based, right? So they may not need them. But um, these are usually pretty pretty big kids that are getting these fractures. And so I usually go 6.5 or 7.3 cannulated screws, partially threaded, unicortical for the most part. Again, not a lot of great solid evidence to guide that. Um, yeah. I know people that partners of mine that use uh, like the largest headless screws. Mm-hmm. You know? So this might be a scenario where like sort of anything does well as long as you fix it properly and like do the right thing post op. But we just don't know yet. And uh, looking out for concomitant injury, you know, meniscus and trap and things like that can happen in these intraarticular versions. Do you routinely scope? Do you routinely MRI? I mean, you're someone who 
You know, if there's a meniscus in trouble, I know you're going to spring to the rescue, whereas <laughs> I might just kind of say, say you're on your own. <laughs> so, you know, what is your threshold to do something uh, more aggressive, more diagnostic? It, it's a great question. And again, this is another one of these things that, like, there's no real evidence-based agreement on. Lots of variability. I'll tell you, even as someone who, you know, scopes a lot of things and enjoys scoping a lot of things, I rarely ever do it in the setting of tibial tubules, even as a fractal pattern that is intra-articular. Something about just pumping a lot of fluid into a, a, a leg that's already a little swollen at a risk for stuff is a little concerning. I guess you do a dry scope, but I haven't really been doing that. I think sometimes, depending on the fracture pattern, you know, you can kind of like book it open and almost look through the fracture into the joint yep. and see if anything's entrapped, fish it out. Um, and then certainly, you know, there's always the thing, you know, you, you treat the fracture, let it heal, make sure nothing's like stuck in the fracture site. And then afterwards, if there's any issues, revisit the MRI and all that. Yeah. I don't know too many folks that are getting MRIs acutely, like a time of injury. Although I suppose if you're in a health system that like has that available, you can go down the hall and get an MRI in the ER right away. Maybe not the worst thing to have in certain fracture patterns. Cool. Great. Thank you for the Amazing. insight. Yep. Yeah. Congratulations. It, Congratulations always, yeah. again. Keep on leading. Appreciate it. Yeah. Way to go <laughs> with you, uh, to Lurry Children's for uh, representing it's for the award session. clean sweep for Chicago, man. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm proud. I think Vandy stuck in there with the award paper. Yeah, hey, but you, guys, <laughs> you guys got a lot of good stuff going on. It's very, very impressive. All right, everybody, this is Craig Lauer. We're back in the uh, Pozna booth um, with Julia and Carter. Proud to have uh, Greg Mincio, my senior partner from Vanderbilt, here with us, who moderated uh, the session uh, involving trauma uh, just the other day, the general session. So, uh, Dr. Mincio, great to have you. Hey, great. Great to be here. Uh, happy to experience the bubble for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not the last. Yeah, well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, um uh, you you got to hear a couple different talks. Uh, I think there were a couple groupings of super condor talks, and a couple of those we think might have some take homes for people back at home. So there's some crazy individuals not prescribing any opioids for super condors. What were their conclusions with yeah, that maybe, one? Maybe not so crazy. <laughs> it's a multi-center uh, study that uh, looked at an opioid prescribing practice and a non-opioid prescribing practice, and basically found that. Uh, ibuprofen and Tylenol was as effective and in a series of about 60-something patients, something one required a rescue uh, dose of, of opioids. So probably a, a good takeaway that it's possible to manage these patients postoperatively without opioids. And even in the opioid group, the number of doses ranged up to about three, but not more than that. So I think this could be a practice-changing uh, thing in a time when, you know, we're paying more attention to uh, narcotics and yeah. opioid prevention. Now, we've recently had a discussion about opioid use in our groups and assigning different tiers to what we're going to yeah. prescribe. Yeah. Should we put uh, super condors in tier zero, maybe just the ones we treat closed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's moving towards that. I mean, when you consider that there are some scoliosis, some uh, practices that uh, don't prescribe opioids for spinal fusion, I mean, we could probably safely do that. And I think this, this study provides a lot of evidence to support that. Yeah, so congratulations to those authors. Yeah. That's uh, a Shaw presented that from CHOP, yeah. but worked with uh, Rady in Seattle and a couple other groups. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and then the um, there was a great paper about a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart, uh, which is operative versus non-operative management of type 2 supercondylars. So tell us what those takeaways were and, and what your thoughts are. Yeah, this was a study from the uh, Canadian supercondylar uh, group. Uh, basically, uh, it showed that there was non-inferiority in terms of outcomes with these type 2 extension supercondylar fractures that were uh, treated by uh, closed reduction, and uh, outcomes were similar for, for both groups. 
and they looked at it was, they looked at uh, radiographic parameters and they looked at functional outcome and I think it provides some support for uh, non-operative treatment in this group of patients. Complications are low as well. Yeah, this definitely adds to the body of literature. This was a really well done study and a, and a really a bigger number of patients than in any other previous cohort. So. I think this is some solid evidence that you may need to have to re-reduce or convert those those to surgery, but it's still a very viable option. So we'll see if, if people's minds start to change on this. Yeah, and I think at that there were, uh, there were only three of 483 that had to be converted, so less than 1%. Yeah. Yep. So. Yep. And uh, one more we wanted to hit on was the uh, clavicle fracture study that looked at how important is skin tinting, which we all know is sort of one of the dogmatic issues of orthopedics. you got to fix them if the skin's tinting, right? So this was a a fact study group study. So can you tell us what you took away from it? Yeah, I think uh, you're right. This is sort of one of those dogmas that maybe uh, this study uh, perhaps busted. But basically what they found was that uh, skin tinting... and even tend to the point of seeing uh, some changes such as ischemia, whitening and ischemia, was not necessarily an absolute indication for operative treatment. In fact, the group that was treated closed in this group uh, did fine and their outcomes were were similar using a variety of uh, of outcome measures. So I think another piece of evidence that goes in the column of why you should maybe not operate on clavicle fractures in adolescents and kids and it's maybe a different population than, than adults. Yeah, really fascinating. So they mentioned, they talked about the skin survival. Did they talk about the uh, the resultant deformity too, if they, were, if they had to go in and shave down any little bone spurs or anything? Uh, they, they did not, but they did comment on healing and remodeling and there were no indications to go back and do any sort of you know revision or rescue surgery. Wow, so, yeah, really could be practice changing. Yeah. Dr. Mencio, thanks for joining us. That was great. Yeah, thanks. Was I think the learners at home uh, yeah. have some new facts to take back to their practice. And yeah. uh, as we said, more evidence towards changing supracondylar operative practice. Yeah, very good. Thank you, guys. And uh, as this meeting winds down to a close, we're happy to be able to show people our city. And hopefully everybody had a good time that we're here. And for those of you who didn't make it, maybe come by sometime in the future. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, it's Craig, and I'm here with uh, Julia and Carter uh, back in the booth, and we are joined by a special guest, another uh, mentor and partner of mine, John Schenker. Welcome, John. Well, thank you. I like that, <laughs> mentor and partner. We, uh, I do, too. <laughs> we, uh, we just finished the award session this morning, and uh, you were given the Basic Science Award for uh, your translational work on Perthes, and um, I think that we want to hear, and the people at home want to hear about the translational aspect of that, and um, I'll just say that unlike a lot of papers nowadays that necessarily start off with strict hypothesis and you follow clear trail and answer that question, I loved how your article went from it went from a finding that you had with intrasurgical specimens and then a literature review, and it was kind of this follow trail of breadcrumbs to actually diagnose and uh, decipher, you know, what the real story is yeah. here. And so I, I think that's a really cool thing that we don't see in a lot of papers nowadays. But yeah. without further ado. Yeah, thanks. You know, this one, I, my fir- first slide that I had is my favorite one. It's just the picture of uh, a Perthes hip and just say, uh, this is confusing. Is, is This has been a mystery in orthopedics forever. Is, and, you know, the part that I broke down in terms of this is confusing is all of us always are looking for a new way to treat it. And the big thing we did was take a step back and just say, before we figure out how to treat it, I think we actually have to figure out what it is. 
And the biggest parts that are confusing is, is what causes it. And then the thing we took on in here is how in the world does this repair? Because so different than an adult avian hip where we know it's not going to heal is, is that all of us know if we get a six-year-old with perthes, well, it is going to heal. And so that was the mystery that we really wanted to take on is, is what's the biology behind that healing? And so it is exactly like you said, to start off, we knew stage two was where the biology existed that was leading to revascularization first. So we focused on getting tissue from stage two and just sitting down with the pathologist and looking at it under a microscope. And we learned so much. And time and time again with the five that we did, it was always cartilage. Mm -hmm. And not just articular cartilage or growth plate cartilage, but the entire epiphysis had these huge cartilaginous islands. And then we could see in the periphery where it was starting to revascularize that it looked like a growth plate. Now, now how did you get that tissue? So we did uh, what Stuart Weinstein did a while back, is, is that if stage two gets into hinge abduction and you have no way of getting them in a brace or you couldn't do any other type of containment, is doing a limited osteochondroplasty in order to get it back in. And so it's the perfect time to get as much tissue as you want. Everything that you're taking off, you can take off, which has been both for us in our experience therapeutic for getting it so they're out of hinge abduction, but then also in terms of having the specimen, it was fantastic. And having had a chance to meet with Stuart and talk with him about all of their and Ponsetti's work, that's where all of theirs came from, is, is that Ponsetti started that in the 1950s which is really funny when you think about this. And the last ones that they did were in the 1980s. And then Ponsetti and Catterall also had specimens that they had from uh, necropsy. So they had kids that, for one reason or another, died during stage two. And so they had a couple of full specimens. And those are the best two that exist. Um, So that's how we got that tissue. And then when we were looking at it, at first, the part that I put in there, and this is why I turned it into revisionist scientific history in the aspect of reading is, I did a literature search and there wasn't anything. And, you know, I really was limiting just to the last like 20 years. And all of a sudden, once I got back to about 40 years, these things started popping up everywhere. And so we had the Catterall and the Ponsetti one, but then there were at least 20 to 100 biopsies every decade, going all the way back to Perthes' first one in 1913. It was great because we came to the conclusion that this is chondrification, but then ended up being backed up by Femister, Waldenstrom, I mean, Perthes. And it just made you feel a little bit more confident than your anecdotal cases of five of saying, hey, guys, this is what it is. And then going back and reading the debate was what led us to our basic science part because when they left that topic in 1982 and 83, you had Catterall that, if you read his discussion, says, I'm not quite certain how this chondrification happens, but I'm positive that it is what's responsible for the healing. And then you had Ponsetti say, this is pathological. And at that point, VEGF hadn't been discovered, BMP hadn't been cloned, and so we did not know that chondrocytes were the main source of VEGF for angiogenesis and BMP for bone formation and endochondral ossification. And so that's where the revisionist scientific history came in, is, is that we set out to try to come up with a way to answer the question of that debate using science. 
And so that's when we got into our animal model and were able to knock down VEGF in chondrocytes in a developing hip and show that vascularization and ossification of a hip is completely reliant on the cartilaginous production of VEGF. So we have a lot more to go on this, but it definitely gives you the idea that that cartilage is what revascularizes and reossifies the hip. And, it, and, and the big thing Stuart and I have been talking about is we think that the number one thing that needs to change in Perthes disease is to change the name of stage two. Because right now it's called fragmentation, some people call it fracture, and it gives this connotation that it's a bad thing. And in actuality, it's the most regenerative part, it's the most hopeful part, and even talking with the families going into it, and that's why we call it the lizard, is, is, is that when we sit down with the kids, we, a five-year-old knows that a lizard grows its tail back, and we tell them, you know, the sad thing is, is that your hip, we don't say the word dead, but, you know, your hip is not doing well, but it's really cool, just like a lizard when it loses its tail, is you're going to grow it back. And they relate to that right away, and instead of the family going into stage two and seeing their hip disappear on x-ray and freak out, we tell them before it happens that that is like the most wonderful thing in the world. And now when the families come in and look at that x-ray, they get excited. And so that's the part about this in terms of the broad aspect that I think has been really fun for me in terms of relating to our parents about what this is. Because inevitably, you'll know they'll come in and ask for what, what about stem cells, what about this, and we get to say they're already there. This is already going to happen. The, the biological process is already there. Yeah. So changing stage two to a name like chondrification or you know repair or something like that, I think is probably one of the best things that we could do to start off in terms of changing how we think about Perthes disease is, is that we want to get to that point. And so, you know, that debate that, um, you know, Catterall and Ponsetti had, just to kind of break it down for our listeners at home, it, as you've explained it to me, there are ischemic pressures, probably biomechanical pressures, but things that make the osteoblasts transdifferentiate kind of backwards into a <clears throat> cartilage cell, and then under the right environment, it will come back to an osteoblast sort of thing. We just have to maintain the correct shape of that cartilage. That's Perfect. So, yes. So, you know, the the question that you just brought up in terms of transdifferentiation, we don't know the answer to that. It is either that the osteoblasts in the epiphysis die off, and like we said, it's Lazarus. It's, it's, you know, you've got stem cells that just start development over and they go straight to chondrocytes like a baby hip, or it's this exciting possibility that as they're dying off, they don't die and they transdifferentiate back into a cell that can manage that strain. A way to think about it on the biomechanical principle, and Blount gives you a better disease representation of it because the same thing happens in Blount, is, is that think of it as, as a stress fracture. Biomechanically or vascularly, you're loading that epiphysis in a way that it can't manage either the vascular component or the biomechanics, and so it's a stress fracture. It's just that you have a way of actually biologically turning it into something that can manage that, and chondrocytes can live without a vascular supply, and they're incredible at managing strain. And so it's the idea that the body is adapting to that environment, and that's why I think that 2A, stage 2A, is really adaptation. And it's adapting to the new thing. Same thing as the medial epiphysis and Blount um, and a lot of the other osteochondropathies. And that's where it's going to change its shape. That's where you're going to get coxa magna, like a fracture that's not really fixed. 
is is that if they're you know moving a ton is is that it's going to get very big in order to manage that strain and the cool thing is is the acetabulum changes too is is that as you look at it you'll see the acetabulum start going through contrification and change its shape mm. to adapt to the uh, proximal femur then once all of that biomechanical aspects managed then it turns into a hypertrophic chondrocyte which is where it's going to plant vegf and bmp and move forward it really makes it so you sit back and think about a lot of the osteochondropathies and, and you know, I've talked about spine. This is whether or not, you know, you have problems with AIS. If you're loading not right, is do the pedicles do the same thing? And are there is there morphological change because essentially they're stress fractures and turning back into cartilage, changing their shape, and then you start getting a scoliotic curve. So thinking clinically, you know, how do we protect during this period of repair, right? Like, what's the what's the clinical I, takeaway from this, do you think? I love that question. If we knew how to measure the uh, strain or really the stress curves, like if we could do those beautiful overlays of stress on the epiphysis and know how much weight-bearing to allow, to know how to do a triple, a varus, or just bracing, to make it so that you are minimizing that stress across there at the right time, that's going to be how we go forward with this. In my personal experience, I let most of my kids, I, I go by motion and let most of my kids continue to ambulate, if not do you know, many athletic activities, because I know wellness is a huge part of this, and putting them on the shelf seems to drive them absolutely crazy. And that's the part of going forward that we need to figure out is how much can you load it without causing enough deformation that's going to lead to something that ultimately, when it reossifies, you need to do hip preservation. Right. Some of the really interesting stuff that we heard at our visiting professor thing a, a couple of weeks at Colorado from Dr. Kim about you know his weight-bearing MRI studies and how it actually shows that in that two-way stage that there is actually collapse of the femoral head and so, but we're talking about a stress-strain curve, right? And so, how do you say like too much strain is or too much stress is not enough? And so, I think that's the really interesting thing it is because there's a lot of people that say you got to keep these kids on weight-bearing, and then there's the people that say we can let them go. This is a scientific question. Yeah. And it also, I think, is a, personally on this, I think that this is a shared decision-making with the family. Yeah. I'm very upfront with the family that if they are really not wanting to put their kid on a shelf for two years, is yeah. this that I can give them parameters to follow that I know in my experience has led to a head that has worked. Right. Um, so, you know, objectively in the long run, all of orthopedics was born out of Rankin, and you know that's a part that I, I don't know if you picked up on the timeline I put up there. I thought it was hysterical. Rankin, x-rays, 1895, yeah. right? Leg, per these, all radiographic, 1909-1910. Different continents. Think about how fast that technology disseminated. Mm-hmm. Nothing would change orthopedics more now than having really good measures of vascularity that we could see by, by x-ray and stress. Yeah. Right now, all we're doing is, is guessing, mm-hmm. and um, we have to just go by our experiences of what we've let these kids do yeah. in order to make those decisions now. Super interesting. Fantastic. One thing I wanted to, I just wanted to kind of bring it all home too with uh, Dr. Mubarak. Um, Scott Mubarak won the what, Lifetime, Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. 
today and one of the takeaways from from him from from being a former fellow of his but also from his speech today that I, everybody heard was you know one of his tips is to study a disease and really understand yeah. the etiology and really do a deep dive into that disease and try to understand what's happening and I think this is a perfect example of that and so thank you for being an inspiration to all the the researchers out there and really following in our in our forefathers footsteps well I appreciate that very much it's a team I mean that's the thing that I wanted to highlight on that is is that all I did was revisionist history. That's the main thing. Is is the number of people who are so curious and did what Dr. Mubarak's talking about and get 50 samples of Perthes disease, and their literature is so good on it. And that's the thing that I tell all of our students is is that, well, first, if you ever had a good idea, you probably didn't go read JBGS from 1920. <laughs> and it was probably already published. But it also is just the rigor of prior research is such an essential step of not just research but education. So much of what we just talked about had been published, it just, they didn't know what VEGF was. Yeah, it's the next frontier. Yeah. That's terrific. John, thanks Great. for joining us. Thank you, guys. Great job, and enjoy the rest of the meeting. You bet. Congratulations. Congratulations.